Well, good morning, beloved. If you can please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll be examining this morning verses 22 to 40. When you do have that, please do stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Hear ye this morning the word of the Lord. When the time came for, pur- for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought uh, in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You are prepared in the presence for all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him uh, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Sovereign Lord, we do come before you thankful for the appointed times and seasons in which we have received and which you have placed us in. Lord, we thank you that we receive even now this morning in your word a beautiful vision of redemptive history being worked out by the consolation that came through Jesus Christ. That in the visitation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you've appointed for the fall and for the salvation of many. That in Jesus Christ, you have given us a rock of offense, a rock of ages, in which we must now confront, in which we must now decide whether we shall build our lives or whether we shall be brought to pieces because of this great rock, this great rock of ages that you've appointed, even for us today, even this morning. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us your grace, your peace, and your power to receive the consolation which was promised in times past and receive it with joy and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, brothers and sisters, as we continue on in the series in the Gospel of Luke, we're now at a very interesting point in the narrative of Christ's life. Still, uh, we are not in his earthly, uh, in, the, in the beginning of his earthly uh, ministry in terms of the appointment that came through John the Baptist as he was baptized. This is a unique account amongst the Gospel narratives. Most of the Gospels uh, often begin either with the um, the narrative of his birth and then jumps right into his ministry with John the Baptist. But here we receive some insight in Luke's gospel. Remember who Luke is. This is a man who is a scholar, who is a historian, who is a physician, who has taken his time to hear uh, various uh, viewpoints, various narratives of the life of Jesus, and he's compiling it. And as he's compiling it, he's bringing together some data points that we just frankly don't see in the other gospels. And as he's bringing us this narrative of the early life of Jesus, he gives us insight as to what it looked like when he was presented at the temple. Now, this is a big deal. Uh, today, we don't live by temple worship, but in the Old Testament, in the beginning of the New Testament, temple worship was still very much the center and citadel of true worship. And so according to the customs, according to the tradition that had been passed down in Holy Scripture, when a child, a male child was born, a firstborn son, that child was brought forth to the temple to be dedicated. Now, interestingly enough, this is where many modern evangelicals and even some brothers and sisters who baptize infants get some of their uh, uh, ammunition for child dedication or for child baptism. They see a custom, a tradition that was in the Old Covenant, and they say, well, certainly we need to have an equivalent today in the New Testament church. Now, that is in itself kind of a fallacy. We don't have to uh, necessarily come up with an alternative to something that's in the Old Covenant just for the sake of doing so. But interestingly enough, we do have here a case in which Christ, of course, is brought to the temple. And it says in verse 22, When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So when a woman gave birth at that moment, according to the Old Covenant, she was considered ceremonially unclean. Because she had just delivered and she was still in a time of, un of uncleanliness and purification. Therefore, she had to be brought to the temple for purification, the child alongside her also. And it says in verse 23, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so here we want, if you're following along today's notes, Mary brought the child to Jerusalem. Just so you know, uh, last week I didn't give you notes. This week I'm giving you lots of notes. So Mary brought the child up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and for her purification according to the law. Now again, I want to I emphasize a difference here between presenting a child and baptizing a child. For again, many of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the fence of this issue, as Pastor Conley brought forth the, in our catechism teaching, the mode of baptism, the correct biblical mode, being that of full immersion. And yet, there are many brothers and sisters out of tradition, out of maybe even a faulty hermeneutic, decide that we ought to also baptize infants or babies. And they see a precedence for this, namely in the Old Covenant, again, where individuals or infants were brought forth, dedicated at the temple, and there was a ritual of purification. Part of the ritual of purification included water. And so they say, well, look, boom, beautiful. There you have. You have essentially a proto-infant baptism that is happening even in the Old Covenant. 
Therefore, we must continue that, uh, that, 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 that tradition, that, that uh, rich uh, history of faith by baptizing infants even now in the New Testament church. But brothers and sisters, great difference there is between a baptism, which is what John the Baptist was doing later on in, the, in his life and ministry, versus a law that required purification and dedication for the firstborn, for the children of the household. There's a big difference between the two. Even today, modern evangelicals will continue a, a proto-practice um, of this kind by, by also dedicating their children, uh, which is a tradition we see even more prevalently in the uh, Orthodox and Catholic systems where a godparent is appointed and that person is now, that child is now under the purview of parents and then godparents. But these are not things that we see presented in Holy Scripture. These are not things that we see uh, uh, prescribed for us in the New Testament worship of God's people, nor do we see it prescribed for us in regard to the relationship between dedication and baptism. We don't see those two correlated in Scripture, so much as many of our friends would want us to consider. But we see continuing along the lines of dedication, as it was the law of the Lord for the child to be de dedicated, for the child to be called holy. For the scripture says, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Jesus Christ being the firstborn of Mary, again being miraculously conceived through the Holy Spirit, being brought forth through the, the womb of a virgin. And this child was to be called holy. This is ultimately foreshadowing the child, not just any child, but the child that was to be born, the child that was to be called holy, the child that would save a people from their sins. All pointing towards Jesus Christ. In verse 24 it says, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, you may read that and you may not bat an eye, but this is actually giving us some insight into the social economic system of that time and where, at, where um, Joseph and Mary were economically at that time. Why is that important? Because Mary and Joseph were only able to offer, offer a pair of turtle doves or pigeons indicating that they were poor. I want you to write that in the notes if you can. This is indicating the fact that the law gave provision in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. It gives provision for those who are poor that they can offer a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. This is indicating, again, the poverty in which Christ was brought forth into the world. Remember for a moment last week's message and the previous week's message where Jesus Christ came into the world he didn't come born in a palace. He didn't come born in a king's uh, chamber. But instead, he came into this world lowly, humble, destitute, poor, with nothing to give, with nothing to offer. He was born to lowly parents, parents who were also poor, had nothing to offer. So much so that even when they went to dedicate their son, their child at the temple, they had to use the bare minimum pair of turtle doves or pigeons because it's what they could afford. Where the more wealthier in society could offer more in their dedication, provision was made in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8 for those who were poor and destitute to give just the bare minimum. And there you have God's Son being dedicated in God's temple with just the bare minimum, with just enough to be dedicated, with just enough to get by. What an astonishing mark of humility 
that God's Son would be brought into the world in such conditions, but also to such humble and lowly parents. They didn't have the pedigree of riches, though they did have the right pedigree in regard to being descendants of David and descendants of Abraham. They didn't have a lot of wealth or influence or power. These are not people of grand uh, means, but instead lowly, poor, destitute people demonstrating the humility of Christ in his self-humiliation that he would appoint for himself parents of such lowly stature. It's beyond comprehension that God, who in eternity past, enjoyed an unbroken chain of worship, of glory, of power, of adoration, would himself humble himself to the point of being born in a manger, having parents who had nothing to give or offer in terms of richly goods and richly treasures, and yet that this poor child would end up becoming the treasure of nations, that this poor child would end up becoming the inheritance of the nations, that men, women, children of all ages, of all backgrounds, of all types of socioeconomic backgrounds would come to this Jesus, this poor and lowly Jesus, who is now exalted above every name, who holds in his hands the riches of all treasures of knowledge and wisdom, that he himself is the wealth of all people. This Jesus, from humble beginnings as to his humanity, now enthroned and glorious praise as the exalted Christ. And it, we see here marked in Luke's gospel the emphasis on the humility, the emphasis on the self-humiliation of Christ's early life, his entrance into the world, but also even to his dedication, the lowliness of Christ in his appearing in the world. Jesus' life is marked by poverty at every point. He's marked at poverty at his conception by having a mother who's a teenager, by having parents who were not even married yet, then having parent, uh, uh, coming into the world in a slowly fashion, being born a major, then being dedicated with only two turtle doves, then also as a man, as a minister, as a rabbi, being one who could not even lay his head down anywhere because he had no place to call home. Luke is adamant at emphasizing the lowliness, humility, and the poverty of Christ. And he, in his gospel, reminds us time and time again. You'll see this, this, this meta-narrative that is unraveling here in Luke's theology, in Luke's narrative. He's demonstrating time and time again the poverty of Christ. And it is through that poverty the Apostle Paul says that we might become the riches of God in Christ. His poverty is a reminder to every single one of us. His poverty reminds us of his love, of his patience, of his kindness, but also of his provision. That this Christ is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. And he provides, most importantly, what we all desperately need, which is salvation. Every single one of us has fallen short of the mark. Every single person here is a sinner, born a sinner, and you will also die a sinner. The only difference is, in this life, in this temporal life that we have, we have opportunity and we have, vo and we have a chance even now to hear the gospel, 
the gospel that is preached, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we can respond with, with saving faith, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't want to stay a sinner. I want to be a, I want to be a saint. I want to be under grace. I want to be under the power of your resurrection. And he'll transfer you from death to life. He'll transfer you from a sinner to a saint. You'll still be a sinner. You'll still content with the old man. But that sinner is no longer just a sinner. He's also a son of God, a child of the Most High. And you and I can have that by faith in this Jesus who for our sake became poor, for our sake took on poverty, for our sake became what he needed not to be, but out of love, out of grace, out of kindness, he lavished all of these beautiful things upon us in the beloved so that we may be saved by grace through faith in Jesus' name. And this is what was being foreshadowed even in, holy, in, in the uh, dispensation before Christ. It says in verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here you have a man who was a prophet, who God had appointed, who God had ordained. And God had spoken to him by the Holy Spirit. This is a time of, of phenomenal revival. God is working. He's pouring out his spirit upon men, women, and children at the coming of Christ. And of course, even more powerfully so in the inception of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. But even then, you see God using the Holy Spirit, God appointing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, to reveal, to set the stage for this Christ. And he had promised him this. He promised this man, Simeon, this. And it was revealed, verse 26, to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. God had appointed this man, Simeon, to not only know about the future coming of Christ, but also that he would see with his own eyes the salvation of the Lord. Now, what set Simeon apart from others? I don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. But it does give us insight to this expectation, to this working of the Holy Ghost, even at the time of the birth of Jesus. And it says in verse 27, He came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in this child Jesus to uh, do for uh, him according to the custom of law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God. This, this man, Simeon, saw the salvation of the Lord as he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. If you're following along in the notes, Simeon was a man waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. Now, this is important because, brothers and sisters, if you ask any Jew today what they're waiting for, what will they tell you? They're waiting for the Messiah. You know, in the times past, if you ask Simeon what he was waiting for, he was also waiting for the Messiah. But the difference is, Simeon, a Jew, was one who had received insight by the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would be born in his day. You ask a Jew today what they're expecting, what they're waiting for. I had a middle school teacher who I got very much along with. At that time, I was a Jehovah's Witness. And he was a Jew. And so we would talk about religion all the time and the similarities and, 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 and the fact that we were not Trinitarians. And, and, but the, the biggest difference even then between a Jehovah Witness and a, and a Jew is that Jehovah Witnesses still believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Christ. Uh, and so we would talk about this a lot. And, and I'd ask him, like, so, so what are you waiting for? Like, what, like, who are you looking for? He's like, well, right now I'm just looking to myself. I am my own Messiah right now. And if the Messiah shows up, then great. But if not... I'll have to do. 
Think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. There's an entire group whom God has revealed himself to in times past. An ancient people who God made a promise and a covenant with. Who says, I will, that God says, I will promise a seed to you. A seed that will bless you, that will be an abundance and inheritance to the nations. That through this seed, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And they missed their own Messiah. They missed him. Not for a lack of witness. Not for a lack of evidence. But because of the hardening of their hearts. The rejection of their own Savior. Of their own Messiah. Therefore, Christ, later on in his ministry, pronounces judgment upon his own people, the covenant breakers, promising that upon that generation would fall all the righteous blood of times past and of times future. That upon that generation would come great calamity and destruction because they had missed the sign of the coming of their Savior, of their Messiah. But Simeon was a man who was looking forward to the consolation of Israel, the consolation being the peace that comes, the, the, the gracious kindness that came through the Messiah, which means comfort. So if you're following on in the notes, Simeon was a man waiting for the arrival of the Messiah and the consolation of Israel, which means comfort. They were waiting for the comfort. And this reminds us of what the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort. Comfort was coming into the world through Jesus Christ. Comfort had come in the person and work of Jesus. And yet, only a few received that promised consolation. Brothers and sisters, let us beware that we be no different. Because many of us, though we live on the dispensation of times in which we receive the fullness of the gospel and the first coming of Jesus Christ, and we know this truth, we accept this truth, still we too may fall prey to missing out on the consolation that God gives through His Son. The peace that He promises. That peace that surpasses, transcends understanding. How can we miss it? Well, we miss it often because of the circumstances of our own lives. We think to ourselves that my circumstances are too big for God. They're too big for the Scriptures. They're too big for me to just pray away. Or for me just to, just, just to be able to uh, comprehend and, and, and bring it to the church. Brothers and sisters, let me produce this line of thinking for you as presented in Scripture. That there is nothing too big for our God. Amen? There's nothing too big for our God. So I don't know what all of your individual circumstances may be this morning, what, what they may be this week. But know and be assured of this, that God is bigger than your circumstances. Not only is he bigger than your circumstances, God is actually in your circumstances. Did you know that? He's in the details of your life. In the small details even. Just as he's in the small details of the story that we're reading from today. You have, again, God speaking by means of his Holy Spirit to a prophet, Simeon. God appointing that at the same time which his, uh, where Christ's father and mother were now bringing him to be presented at the temple, that Simeon would be there. At the right time, at the right place. It's all about the details, my friends. And God is in the details of your life. It's nothing happens in our life by happenstance. We believe in a sovereign, benevolent God who appoints all things for His glory and for our eventual good. 
Now, it's often kind of misused, the scripture from Romans 8, that it says, obviously you know this scripture well, that God works together all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And we say, we see everything that happens is good. No, 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 no. Not everything that happens is good, but it is eventually for your good. So when you think to yourself about your circumstances, it's clear that at times there are things in your life that are not good. It's not good to be laid off. It's not good to have problems in our marriage. It's not good to be going through a difficult time. Those are not good. But what is he producing in the midst of those bad, difficult things is the eventual good of the glory of his name. God is doing all things for his glory, not necessarily for your happiness. God is not one who is here to serve your happiness, but rather it is in the pursuit of his glory that we find true peace and happiness. It's where we find our consolation. Our consolation is found in the pursuit of his glory. That's where we find true consolation. And that's where Israel for the majority, failed. They were looking for the glory of Israel, the glory of the nation, the glory of the prestige of, of, of triumphing over Rome, triumphing over the enemies. And yet, they lost sight of the glory of God that came in the face of Jesus Christ. The greatest glory that could be beheld by human eyes, God incarnate in Jesus, was rejected. And their glory became their shame, the scripture says. Let it not be so for us that we miss out on the consolation that God gives through Jesus Christ because we are looking to our circumstances, we are looking to the glory of other things rather than the glory of our King, of our blessed Savior, even the Savior of Israel, Jesus Christ. Don't miss it out. For as even when Simeon received this word, this prophetic word by the Spirit, and he had seen its fulfillment. Notice what he goes on to say. As he blesses God, he takes a child in his arms, holding Jesus, this child, the promise, the, chi the child of promise. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have, been, and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. What a beautiful prophetic word he speaks in fulfillment of the prophetic word that he had received through the Holy Spirit. He says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. And he's saying this, God, now I can die. Now I can die in peace. Because for years and decades, I have been waiting eagerly in expectation of your promise. That's faithfulness. That's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, be faithful. Live a life of faithfulness like Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation. And all that he got to see was at least the, 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 the child. He didn't get to see his crucifixion. He didn't get to witness his resurrection. Didn't get to witness his ascension. Didn't get to witness the outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon the people of God in Acts 2. He didn't get to witness so many things. But what he got to witness was enough because it was what was promised. It was what was promised. And what God promises and what he fulfills, it's enough. And so Simeon 
seeing the promise of God, and not only seeing it, but actually holding it. Can you imagine holding that child? It's an exciting thing when you hold any newborn baby, but particularly this one, who he knows will save a people from their sins. And he's saying, God, now I can die in peace. Why? Because it is according to your word. He's a li- he lived a life of faithfulness based upon living out the word. He says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. God says, I promise you, Simeon, through the Holy Spirit, you will see the salvation of the Lord. You'll see this promised child. And that's all he promised. And Simeon, being faithful, knowing that he had received the promise to which he had received and was given through the Spirit, he could say, now I can go in peace according to your word. Could you say such a thing? God made you a promise. If God spoke to you and he speaks to us through his word, Would it be enough in saying, God, thank you, now I can die in peace according to your word because I have seen your faithfulness. I have seen and tasted that you are indeed good. And brothers and sisters, can I remind you, God is indeed good. God is indeed blessing his people. He blesses you even in times of great trials and difficulty. Even when when life doesn't feel like a blessing, he's still blessing you. He still loves you. He's still pursuing you. So then may we pursue him with such fervor that we can say the same words as the prophet did, that I can now die in peace because I have seen your promises according to your word. And not only does he say that, but he says in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Literally, he's literally seeing the child of promise in his hands that through this child, salvation would come to the world, salvation would come to the nations. So much so that he goes on to say, and you've prepared, that you have prepared in the presence of all people, so not just the Jewish people, not just for the consolation of Israel, but really for the consolation of all peoples, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You see, Simeon, a prophet, I think he was more than just a prophet, he knew the word of God. He knew that part of the eschatological expectation of the Christ, of the Messiah, wasn't just for the peace and consolation of Israel, but also to fulfill what was promised to Abraham, that through the seed, through the promised child, would come blessing to all the families of the earth and all the nations. So this man knew the word of God, and he knew that this promise extended far beyond the national borders of Israel, but was indeed a child for all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. Beautiful. You see, Jesus was appointed as a promised child to see the blessing and the salvation for all people. So if you're following the notes, see men rejoice in seeing the salvation of the Lord and the light to the nations in the newborn Jesus. As the angel of the Lord indicated earlier in the narrative in Luke's gospel, in his name, in bringing forth this child, his name shall be called Jesus. Why? For he shall save a people from their sins. He will also bring illumination to the spiritually dark nations under demonic principalities. You see, part of the equation here is we see in the Old Testament this narrative being played out. God, out of all the families of the earth, had chosen one particular people, one family, the offspring of Abraham. He chose Abraham as his, 
as, as his inheritance, Jacob as his inheritance, and that through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would build a family that would represent him on the earth. And God, in Deuteronomy 32, apportioned the nations under the sons of God. And the scripture teaches us this, that the nations began to sacrifice not to God, but to demons. They began to worship created things, begin to worship principalities and powers that were not Yahweh, that were not the true God of Israel. And God says, I want my people, Israel, to be fully devoted to me, to be a people that's distinct and peculiar among the nations. And that through the witness that Israel would give, all the nations, all the families of the earth would receive a light and revelation of the true God. But what ended up happening, tragically, is that this people became wayward, became a backslidden people, so much so that they began to apostatize and worship Baal, worship Molech, worship other gods and deities, even sacrificing not unto Yahweh, but using the temple of God to worship and sacrifice unto demons. And because of their spiritual harlotry, their spiritual uncleanliness, God appointed for them judgment. And judgment came more than once upon this people. But God made a promise even to them that through them still would come the Savior, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. So God didn't completely destroy this people, but, knew, but allowed this people to continue to exist so that through them the Messiah would come and bless all the nations of the earth. The consolation of Israel is this even today, that though they had been, become an apostate people, God still brought forth the Messiah from among their ranks, from the patriarchs, from those who, whom God had appointed in times past. And Jesus Christ has come in fulfillment of those promises, in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Jesus Christ is indeed the one who brings forth salvation for all people, not just for the Jew, but first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. For God's witness, even in the inception of the early New Testament church, was a witness first to Jerusalem. And Jesus said this upon his ascension, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. God's witness in the first century and the first several years of the Christian church was primarily to the remnant of Israel. And God then brought forth an apostle, an apostle that would be a representative of him to the nations, to the Gentiles. And this was a man whose name was Saul who became the apostle Paul. God had appointed a new prophet, a new apostle, to be a representative not only to the Jewish people, but also primarily to the Gentiles. God's promise of revelation for the Gentiles, has been fulfilled. As even now, most of us sitting in here today are not Jews, but instead Gentiles. Showing that even now the greatest harvest work that has happened under the, face of, under the heavens has been received primarily by the nations, people of every tribe, language, nation, tongue, every skin color, every hue, has now come under the submission of King Jesus. And though there be a remnant of Jews who receive Christ and who are believers in the Messiah, the light of revelation for the Gentiles has come. We are living in such a time, even now. And Simeon closes off his praise to God by saying, it will also be for the glory to your people, Israel. Jesus is the glory of Israel. 
And he's the glory even of the new Israel. Those who, are, who make up the Christian church, Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is the glory of his people. He's the revelation to the Gentiles. So much so that Western civilization itself is built upon the principles of a Judeo-Christian worldview. Evidence that all of civilization today is still built upon a Christian worldview. One that says that human beings of all skin colors, of all backgrounds, are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That you are made in the image of God. This is a Christian worldview. This is a biblical worldview. One that finds its origin in scripture and even so in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That men, women, and children everywhere are endowed because they bear the mark and image of their creator. Indeed, light has been given to the nations, to the Gentiles, and glory for the people of Israel. Verse 33 says in Luke chapter 2, it says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, uh, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon, like the good prophet that he is, speaks almost in a riddle, but also at the same time very plainly. He says to Mary, his mother, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, showing and demonstrating that though Jesus be the glory of Israel, he's also appointed for the fall and for the rising of many in that people group, in that nation. And this is fulfilled, obviously, in his ministry where Jesus divides the people. People were divided over Jesus. Jesus was a polarizing figure. You know, today in today's society, we don't like polarizing figures. We want, we're always looking for the next great uniter. We're looking for the next JFK, the next Ronald Reagan. We're always constantly looking for the next person who's going to bring together both parties, both people groups, whites, blacks, uh, Asians, Hispanics, who's going to bring together Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians. They're going to bring everyone together under the same roof so we'll all be happy. You know, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what the Messiah did. He didn't bring people together and say, oh, we're all just one big happy family. We'll all figure it out. No, Jesus was polarizing. He was so polarizing that they killed him because of the claims that he was making. That's how polarizing he was. And yet, it was prophesied even by Simeon that this would be the case with this child, that this child would cause a sword of division. Jesus said so of himself even, that the gospel, that his message would be a sword even in one's own household. That it would divide people because the truth of the matter is truth divides between right and wrong, what is and what is not, and what is right and what's wrong. And so what Jesus does in his earthly ministry is he divides people. And on that great day when our Lord returns, he will divide people again. And in this time, there will only be two camps, as there really has always ever been two camps. You'll either be an enemy of God, or you'll be a friend. You'll either be a son, or you will be disregarded. You will either be a goat, or you'll be a sheep. 
And on that day, you want to be a sheep, not a goat that goes off into destruction on that great day, but instead you want to be found as a sheep of Jesus Christ who hears his voice and follows him. And this child, Christ, would become the one on which many will fall upon. He's the rock of offense, the rock of ages. Many would fall. Many would not find their consolation in him. But only those who have faith in Jesus find their consolation in Jesus. Again, Simeon says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Christ would be opposed in his earthly life and ministry. So then it should be no wonder for any one of us today that we would be opposed for our identification in Christ Jesus, for our biblically held values and beliefs. It's no wonder the world hates us. It first hated him. It hated Christ. It hated what he stood for. And yet today, we see a world, a nation, a people, a culture that is very much divided against us because of what we hold to be true. I say, even so, come Lord Jesus. They hated him, therefore they will hate us. And, Jesus, and he says this in verse 35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, foreshadowing this Messiah's own death, and how it will pierce the heart of his mother, Mary. Mary was pierced when she saw her son pierced. And says, So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Think about this. She's, Simeon in this scripture is foreshadowing the cross. He probably doesn't know the details, but through the Holy Spirit, he is given insight to some degree. And he is speaking this truth to Mary, that Mary would also be, her soul would be pierced as she sees her son being pierced. And also that the thoughts of many will be revealed on that day. Certainly on that crucifixion account, once we get there, eventually you'll see this. But the hearts of many on that, on that day were, were indeed exposed. For instance, you had two men right next to Jesus. One who mocked and despised him, and another who said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Hearts were exposed. You either have a heart that mocks and despises the Christ, or you have a heart that says, Lord, I know I'm a broken, weak, pathetic sinner, but remember me. When you enter your kingdom, hearts were exposed. Hearts were exposed on that crucifixion day when the Roman soldiers mocked and spat upon the Christ and casted lots to receive his clothing and his goods. And hearts were exposed when that great trembling of the earthquake came and people began to say truly that he was the Son of God. Hearts were exposed. And hearts are exposed even today. When we as Christians speak and preach the gospel and we beg people everywhere to be reconciled to God and we say, come to this Jesus who is a great forgiver of sins and who is able to make you strong even unto salvation. And hearts are exposed when they say, yea or nay, to the greatest invitation that can be given today, the invitation to God's banquet, the invitation to become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Hearts are exposed when the gospel is preached. It reveals the intention of man's heart. 
So brothers and sisters, what a great work we have to partake in today as Christians, as individuals who receive this great light of revelation of the Christ, the glory of Israel. When we preach the gospel, when we, tr when we preach God's truth, hearts are indeed revealed and exposed. We see also in this narrative, in verses 36 to 38, this prophetess, Anna, uh, who was also of the tribes of Israel. And she was advanced in years, and she comes to the temple. And, and notice what it says about her. It says in verse 37, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. You have another, another servant of God who had fully dedicated herself to the worship of God by accompanying, uh, not only being in the presence of the temple, but also accompanying her worship with Prayer and fasting, night and day. Dedication. You see the dedication of Simeon. You see the dedication of the prophetess Anna. And it says in verse 38, And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see what dedication does and what it provides? It provides an opportunity for us to see the faithfulness of God in fulfilling His promises. We are called to be a faithful people. We are called to be a people who is waiting. It's not very different from what we see with Anna and what we see with Simeon. People who had received insight, revelation into Christ's coming and they waited, they waited eagerly expecting to see the promises. Brothers and sisters, God has made a promise to us and the promise is this, that we shall see Him face to face. We shall see Christ face to face even on the, the day that we die or when he returns in glory. But either way, there is an appointment that every single one of us have. And it's a day that is appointed. It is surely to come. We are all part of that great statistic. 10 out of 10 people will surely die. We will all have that appointment. Some of us sooner than, than others and maybe even sooner than we expect. But brothers and sisters, what will you do on that great day? What will be your consolation when you see the Savior face to face. Will your consolation be this, that I have trusted in you, I have trusted in you as my revelation, as my glory, as my sight, as all that I am, all that I have has been yours, Lord. You are my consolation. Or will you have said, my consolation were in my riches, in my possessions, in my job, in my title, in all the things that I did and all the things that I accumulated, would that be your consolation? For it shall be no consolation on that day. For you'll never be able to bring it with you. There's no time in which you'll see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't bring your things with you. The Egyptians tried it, and now all their goods are in museums and scattered across the world. And yet, brothers and sisters, may your consolation be today that I have trusted in Christ, that I've trusted, that I've waited and seen the faithfulness of God so that we, too, can have a testimony likened unto Simeon, likened unto the prophetess Anna, that we, on that day, be found worshiping him and be found waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that we are a part of today. This is what it means to have spiritual fitness and spiritual hope for the future. If you're following in the notes, let me give you these real quickly so we can close our time together. 
Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many, which refers to the judgment over Israel. And the Christ would be a sign that is opposed, foreshadowing his future suffering and crucifixion. When we see in regard to the prophetess Anna, she demonstrated patience as she waited for the consolation of Israel by worshiping and fasting in the temple day and night. How do you, dear Christian, wait for the consolation of Israel today, the Israel of God's people? Will you be found faithful, even like the prophetess Anna, who was found worshiping and fasting day and night? Should that, would that not be a beautiful way to be found on that great day, to be found worshiping him steadfastly. And we also see this as we close our time together in this narrative scene here in verses 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is our Savior. This is our Christ. By following the word and the law of God, Jesus, in his humanity, grew and became strong. You can write that in there as well. Became strong and filled with wisdom as the favor of God was upon him. Friends, spiritual, spiritual strength and wisdom comes by obedience, obedience to the word and obedience to the law of God. You too can find favor with God today. Not simply by being one who obeys, but first and foremost, knowing this, that apart from Christ, you cannot obey. You will not obey. You will find no spiritual strength to save yourself from your own sins. But salvation has come only in and through the name of Jesus Christ, that by means of his perfect obedience, by means of his shed blood on the cross, by means of his righteous standing before God and his resurrection from the dead, you and I can now share in the favor of Christ. As he grew in strength and favor, so we can grow in strength and favor, being found in him and him alone. My hope and prayer for you this morning is if you don't know Jesus, may you know him today while it is still called today, and do not harden your hearts as the Israelites did in the days of rebellion, but rather that you would find consolation even for your own soul. I pray this for you in Jesus' name. Let me pray. Benevolent Savior, precious Jesus, you are indeed a good Savior, mighty to save. We pray, God, that you would deliver your people from their sins. We pray, God, that you would do so by allowing us to not only hear the gospel, the good news, but also, Lord, to receive it by faith and that our faith, the faith in which we now stand, would lead us to eternal life because it is found and based in you. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you. I pray, God, that you would grant them faith and repentance, for faith and repentance is not a possession of all men, but is only granted by above. As the Father draws men, women, and children to Jesus Christ, Lord, may you do so even today, that people today would repent of their sins and trust in you, that you are the true hope, peace, and consolation of your people, and there is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see, in, as in, it is laid out in your word, 
the hope that we have been given and the hope that we have, even peace, peace with God, and that we would grow in faith and strength and stature in Jesus Christ for your glory and for your name's sake. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.